Thank you for tuning in to the Pedagogies for Social Justice podcast, brought to you by a student staff partnership at the University of Westminster. This is a platform for students and educators to exchange knowledge and encourage discussion about the current challenges facing higher education. I'm your host Kyra and for this episode I'll be in conversation with Lubna bin Zayad who has just completed a Masters in Journalism at Westminster. Lubna also plays a role in the Pedagogies for Social Justice Steering Committee as well as a co-creator of the project's glossary. In this interview we discuss multiraciality, media representations and how we might begin to decolonise media and media curricula. Hi Lubna, thank you so much for joining me on this episode of the podcast. I've been looking forward to finally getting you on here. How are you doing? I'm doing good. I'm super hot. You know, we talked about it a bit earlier, but (laughs) the weather is beautiful, so I cannot complain. I'm very happy with what we're having so far. So I like to start off the episodes with guests telling us a little bit more about themselves in their own words. So first things first, where are you from? Yeah, so... By the accent, I am clearly not from the UK. I, most people think American, but I'm Canadian by virtue of just having the very generic North American accent. Um, So I'm from Canada, from the city Calgary, Alberta, we're Western Canada. Not many people know it, which is okay. And I'm studying, I'm doing actually my master's in um, broadcast journalism at the University of Westminster. But my, uh, my journey here was a bit, you know, it's not as conventional as most people. I ended up basically doing two master's degrees. So one was in Islamic history and then the second one was in journalism. Amazing. And what were your kind of reasons for choosing to do a master's in journalism? I'm aware your undergrad is in another subject. Yeah, my, my undergrad actually was in cultural anthropology. And then I did a minor in archeology span and development studies because in my head, that was like the holy trifecta and I wanted to be the next Indiana Jones with like the fashion sense of Lara Croft so I had these big dreams um, and then I realized you know getting into anthropology specifically academia it was just a very long and arduous road with a lot of schooling and I just did not have that energy and um, I was a bit I think I was a bit jaded by the whole academic experience once you come to the end of your undergrad I kind of realized what academia was about and we'll probably touch on it a little bit more as we get through this podcast but um it was quite white (laughs) especially in my city um and it was very narrow-minded and competitive and I just thought you know it 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 wasn't doing me justice and it doesn't do academia justice so I decided Mm. to eventually choose journalism well actually what I wanted to get into was more private sector work, using my academic background, primarily using the concept of like culture and heritage and tangible elements of heritage as a way to build like socioeconomic development in countries and communities that have very rich heritage. Mm. That's also a very difficult industry to break into. (laughs) So uh, along came journalism and, you know, um, I really love writing and I really love telling stories. And I also like just, hearing what people have to say and then taking their words and kind of creating um, a narrative for people to listen and enjoy. And I thought there's a lot of stories and there's a lot of data out there in anthropology and archeology span and kind of that area of, of academia that often just stays in these dusty journals that only a few people read or often reference maybe in one or two of their own articles and that's it you know, academia actually does a big disservice because you do all of this amazing research 
but then it never gets shared with the public. So in my head, I thought journalism would be the greatest way to kind of take all of this information that's out there, this research that's been done by these academics in a lot of kind of areas that you might not necessarily think of. My area of interest is primarily in the Middle East and in the Islamic world. And I thought I could take journalism, I could use journalism and um, kind of make that as like a vehicle to tell these stories and inform the world out there. And so that's, that's my story of, of coming into journalism. No, amazing. I think that's a really thoughtful approach as well, just to have like going into your studies and things like that. So what would you say has been kind of the highlight of your master's? Oh, that is such a difficult question to answer. <laughs> because I feel like me and a lot of other students, I'm not the only one, we just, we sort of got um, shortchanged for our, our university experience. But I try and see the, the glasses half full instead of half empty. So I would say the highlight really was the people that I met. Like I met some amazing people on my course and that was, I just think to myself, if I never took this course, I would have never met them. So I would say that that's definitely been the highlight. And you know what? I've kind of enjoyed working from home, like doing school from home because I've had a lot of time to do other things and I didn't have yeah. to spend all this time like commuting back and forth from my university. So again, there's a silver lining to this whole experience. So just thinking about your background, multiraciality is a topic that we've talked about previously on the show, particularly like the experience of being mixed with ethnicities that aren't white or racialized as white. So you being Arab and Indian, you know, you fall into this category alongside myself. And I think it'd be interesting to get an idea of your biracial experience. So when you were growing up at home, did you ever feel like you were more in touch with one culture than others? Or would you say it was a very like even split? Uh, yeah, that's such a good question, actually. And I feel like that question can be answered depending on the part of my life I was in, you know, okay. um, over to, I guess, to answer your first question, how I, when I was growing up, what kind of culture was I more in touch with? The thing is, is that I felt very proud of both. Mm -hmm. However, I was not necessarily seen as a part of either. And the biggest one was due to the fact that I didn't speak Arabic or Hindi as uh, growing up I never learned it I was never taught it actually so I don't want to say I never learned it because it was never taught to me mm. and when language is no longer part of it, it feels like language is what makes you part of that culture because mm -hmm. it it's how you're able to communicate with people from that culture from that community and when you can't do that unfortunately by default those members of that community don't see you as part of their group. Mm. And I've tried to talk to this to a lot of people who come from an Indian background or from an Arab background and they can never fully understand the experience because they've never had to go through that. And it was quite an isolating experience growing up because I looked Arab. Um, my name was fully Arab. You couldn't, I couldn't, you can't run away from that name. And so I'd have people coming and asking me, oh, like, do you speak Arabic? And I felt like no wasn't enough of an answer. I had to launch into like this, my own personal history as like some sort of justification as to why I didn't speak it. And it still mm -hmm. wasn't enough. Um, and then on the other hand, uh, also being Arab wasn't enough. Like I would identify as being Arab, but the community that I grew up in had a lot of people from the Levant region of the, of the Middle East of the Arab world. 
and I look very different to that. They're more often fair skinned, um, lighter hair, lighter eyes. And I just come in as like this dark skinned, dark haired person. Um, and people are like, oh, you're not Arab because their perception of Arab was what, you know, what they knew. So I think I identified through to both my cultures, primarily through my parents, more often my mom. She was, a, she was the person who instilled our culture and our cultural values, both the Arab side, because she's not Arab, she's Indian, but also the Indian side and actually primarily through food, you know, mm. um, and the music and the films. So I knew everything, even like the politics, but I, it was, I was still not considered Arab enough. And so I think I primarily just defaulted to identifying as like Canadian, you mm. know, um, but I think it was only as I got into university that being like a colored person or a person of color, sorry, really kind of, that's when it kind of struck me that there is a difference because growing up I was in, um, I hung out with a lot of white kids. I was in a white neighborhood and I never really saw, like I never, I don't think it registered. And I'm sure you've experienced this before. Like your ethnicity didn't really register as like something as different. It was like, oh, we're different colors, but like it doesn't really matter sort of thing. I think it was mm -hmm. only as I got older that I realized there are a lot of problems. And as I reflect through them, I realized that growing up, there were instances where I faced, um, you know, racism or prejudice. And I just wasn't aware of that until you, you reflect back on it. That's the, that's the long story. Honestly, it, it sounds like a quite a painful experience as well. I think like just hearing what you've gone through. So would you say that you kind of, you had to like navigate your kind of racial identity for like going before school and then when you ended up coming into school you realized that you know that you were able to just kind of have this identity and that it was okay amongst you know your peers and things like that yeah so I it it definitely was quite a painful experience and um, I don't think anyone will ever understand what that feels like unless you come from a biracial uh, mm -hmm. background and even then I think some biracial uh kids or children or biracial people have a, a better experience than others um, mm -hmm, absolutely so it, yeah it's quite nuanced I would say that I never it was never about justifying my existence amongst my peers or even like my my white friends because they never really cared mm. I found that where I really had to justify my existence and my cultural identity were with members from each of my cultural backgrounds from my Arab background from my Indian background I think that was the hardest part. There was no real just acceptance of it. So I think I've come to kind of a, accept it now. I realize that I don't need to justify my existence and I don't really need to identify as, as, as anything except what I want to identify. Like I, I do think yeah. we've come to a day and age now where identity politics has now just become I think you'd rather, I think you should just go to therapy instead of like discussing <laughs> identity politics in depth because it's not going to serve you. Um, mm. You're just going to spend your time trying to argue with others and justify your existence. But mm. it helps. I wasn't an only child. I had a brother and sister. So we kind of grew up with this experience together. And I think as we've gotten older, we've had very, um, we've had very frank discussions about our childhood and growing up and it, it helps. And my mom, yeah. honestly, like shout out to her. She was the one who really was a pillar. It was like, you don't, you don't have to justify who you are. You are who you are sort of thing. 
so what did you kind of thinking about just kind of like media and you know socialization and things like that like what did you used to watch growing up like did you feel like you had access to good representations of girls that you know you could say that looks like me not at all Mm. 100% not at all uh I grew up in you know in western Canada in a time where my city was um primarily white and it's only been over the last 15 years or so that you've seen a lot more diversity and representation. But in terms of media, no, even our Barbie dolls, like our Barbie dolls were white. Um, so I think I've never seen anyone like me on TV, even now, honestly, like I mm-hmm. can never see, I've never seen a half Arab, half Indian person who's Canadian, who identifies as a woman who's also Muslim on TV. Mm. You know what, if Hollywood's looking for that, they can come reach out to me. Um, but no I never did and again it was one of those things like growing up I didn't it didn't really seem like it was an issue too much I remember and I don't know if you've ever done this if you have siblings and you've done this with your siblings but like you would watch a tv show and then you would like call a character you'd be like oh I'm this character and I'm that character mm, yeah um, and you would like fight amongst your siblings no I want to be that person that was like kind of what we did but it was never based on color it was actually more gender mm. okay you know, my brother would be obviously the boy, my sister and I would be one of the girls. Um, But I think where I really wanted to see representation was when I was older. I think Mm -hmm. now is when I really want to see people like me, even bodies like me, like as well, like any, I just want to see a diversity in it because there's 7 billion people on earth and we do not look all alike. And so Mm -hmm. it'd be great to see that representation. And I think Canadian media particularly, is actually getting a little bit better. Like we have produced a lot of independent TV shows and movies that have representation and it's not representation Mm. in kind of like a tokenized way. Um, It's just kind of like these people happen to be of this different ethnicity, but they're casted for the role because they actually do a good job acting. Um, And I really love that. I think think actually, uh, just to wrap this up, but like two really great examples is of representation. The first one is Little Mosque on the Prairie. Uh, that came out maybe like a few years after 9-11. So around 2006, or yeah, about 2006-ish. And it was basically about this Muslim community in this tiny town, uh, farming town in Saskatchewan, it's a province in Canada, and kind of how they navigate their relationship with their neighbors. Mm. And it was so, it was done so well because it, it showcased different, you know, different perspectives and perhaps instances of ignorance kind of how they navigated that dialogue I think that was very proactive for 2006 you know uh Canada and then I also like Kim's Convenience I think that that's an excellent show uh show to you know demonstrate kind of like the Korean Canadian experience with you don't have to be Korean to relate to you know the characters I think if you come from any ethnic background you you can see parallels so yeah I do thinking upon that and reflecting upon that I think that you know the diversity mm-hmm. in media is really important and representation is important. And I think I'd benefit from it more now than I did in the past. Mm, no, I agree. And thank you for those suggestions, actually. I'm going to add them to my list. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I completely agree with you. And I think it's not even just like, okay, I do want to see definitely representations of people that look like me, but I also want it to be like the experience as well. Like, I think it would it would be great to have a show of like the biracial experience and not just have like, you know, this is a biracial woman who is the lead. Like, I would like to see that kind of 
relationship and like to see that narrative and I think yeah there's definitely been a shift and there's a lot of kind of shows that are bringing those kind of ideas forward and yeah I think it's definitely a step in the right direction but thank you so much for sharing and I'm pleased we got to have this conversation it's so interesting to kind of compare like other people's experiences to my own and I also feel like it allows me to kind of know them on a deeper level and you know that's always a pleasure (laughs) yeah of course but um, right, moving on, I came across this quote a few months back, actually, from the Decolonizing Media Collective. And it speaks to how, because the media is like a dominant and powerful set of representational apparatuses, they say, we must hijack the spaces they colonize and decolonize the sites that they have infiltrated. And I think, you know, the media is a perfect example of coloniality, but I'm interested in kind of what your opinion is. Um, what spaces within the media do you feel have been kind of colonized or for me to better word it, what kind of characteristics of the media make it a kind of colonial force or tool? Yeah, that's an excellent question as well. And I think that there's a lot to unpack with that Mm. question. I would say first and foremost, because I kind of, it kind of touches on your earlier question about representation in the media and growing up. Mm -hmm. And as you were, you know, asking this current question, I thought to myself, where I wanted to see better representation wasn't in popular media, it was in news media. Because mm. I grew up right at the height of 9-11. You know, I wasn't shielded from that. I remember having a, my mom and dad having a very frank discussion with my siblings and I when 9-11 happened that said, our lives are going to change now because something happened. And as Muslims, we are now responsible for that, uh, for the fallout. Um, And I remember having these eight-year-old me having to talk to a bunch of like grade two or three years who were talking about like 9-11 constantly. And I, during like our current events kind of uh, session in class, and I'm out here being like, do you understand that there's atrocities happening in Iraq? There's still children being killed in Palestine. This is like eight-year-old me having to now come and have these discussions because I felt like I had to defend everyone, uh, defend Muslims because you know we were not being fairly represented. So I think to answer your question about what spaces in the media are colonized, we can forget about popular media for a second because popular media also has issues with representation in terms of just kind of like typecasting people and projecting kind of like prejudices and ignorances, but that's, it's a whole different story. I think the most insidious form of media is news media because as the public we tend to trust media as something that's objective in fact in our journalism courses we're constantly being taught the ethics and as a journalist you're meant to be objective but unfortunately journalism is subjective by nature it'll be subjective because even if you try and be as objective as possible you still are in a role of privilege when i'm a war journalist i have a role of privilege coming in there I have my own unconscious biases. I'm representing perhaps a media group that has a certain agenda. So media is not objective. It is fully subjective. And it's, and it's more insidious because we see it as something that we can trust and it's truthful. It's only now that we're sort of seeing that the news obviously has a bias and has an agenda. And I think that we need to start addressing that. Um, even when we think of news platforms that we thought in the beginning we could trust, and I've been you know, guilty of this. 
first and foremost, the New York Times. I was a really big proponent of the New York Times, at, you know, and I'm talking about this like kind of like within the last 10 years because every Western news outlet post 9-11, during 9-11 and 10 years after 9-11 was completely biased. But I think once, you know, around 2015, 2016, the narrative towards how Muslims were portrayed in the media had changed. And so, for example, the New York Times, I was like a full, I fully supported it until they started releasing articles about what was happening in Palestine and in Israel and the headlines. The headlines to me were just like, how could you write something like that? You didn't even represent two sides. What you did was you sensationalized something and you clearly showcased what your perspective and stance was. And that impacts people who read it and who are not gonna do their own research. So I think the long story short is that the media, some news media is one of the most problematic areas of media in general. And that is, the, that is the form of media that's most colonized and that we do need to decolonize. And we have an issue. We have an issue with publications not allowing people of color um, to come onto their payroll. You know, we have issues even just with the concept of freelancing. A lot of freelancers are people of color or minority groups. And we're only called upon when we need to be tokenized and we need a voice to the community. And I'm sure, you know, uh, also being half black, you've seen that experience when the BLM movements were happening, like all of a sudden there was a black person on every new show. It's like, we don't need that. We need we needed continuous representation at, that was normalized, not when there was some atrocity that happened and then you like, get the random black guy to come and talk about the experiences, like that's not helpful. So yeah, I think that, and as a journalist or I guess wanting to be a journalist, I've become more jaded. It's funny getting into journalism kind of has made me jaded again about the experience. And I don't know if that's just growing up, you end up realizing that like the rose colored glasses you have are now kind of, they're losing their color and you're like, oh, the world isn't as, well, I don't see the world isn't as good as a, of a place as you thought it was, but there are more issues than I thought. Mm existed and there's a lot of work that needs to be done so do you think it kind of falls onto the kind of individual actions of like journalists and kind of the way the media is kind of like a colonial force again also a very very good question and I think it's kind of like a two-part question unfortunately and this really sucks but I think that as individuals the responsibility always lies on our shoulders you know, we work hard to vote and to promote politicians that we think are going to do well for the community. We try and support businesses that we think have a good agenda. And then all of a sudden they mess up and or they have an issue and they look back to the public and they're like, well, it's time to fix it. And so up again, we pick up the pieces and we try and build again. But to answer your question, I would say it's two parts. So I think first, yes, it is unfortunately up to journalists. Uh, we do have to be the ones to make change. Um, I think that can come through two ways. First, it comes across, you have to do it by calling out publications. There is this sad, very sad, unfortunately, kind of unspoken rule amongst the journalism community, especially amongst freelancers, is that if we have an issue with a publication or an editor, we can't actually call them out because there is a power dynamic, an unfair power dynamic. And I want to point out that editors and, pub and these publications it's not just white people, it's every person. Of, it's Everyone is represented in there. But when you add that element of power, it doesn't matter what color you come from. Power is what causes the imbalances. 
and um, that's what causes that systemic oppression. Mm-hmm. So I think as freelancers, I want to have more of a honest conversation about publications that are problematic and editors that are problematic. For whatever reason, we need to call them out on it because we continue to just reinforce it because unfortunately we're at their mercy. If I call out a major publication, I'm not, I'm going to be blacklisted. And then there goes my livelihood. So it's all of a sudden you need like whistleblowers, but we're not even blowing like whistleblowing major state secrets. We're just saying, Hey, this publication actually has some severe problems and they need to be called out. They just need to change. That's it. I think the second step really is to support more independent uh, news, news outlets and look towards getting your news from other communities and other sides of the world. Uh, I think we tend to put a lot of emphasis and value on Western media outlets, but the West, that's only because we've been colonized to think that Western media is objective, is truthful, is fair, because it comes across under this fallacy of free speech. Newsflash, mm-hmm. there's no such thing as free speech. You know, we only just, we're only fed to think, you know, there is free speech because it makes us feel better about ourselves. But yeah, so it's tough. Um, and it's not something that's going to happen overnight, but I do think if we start the conversation now, I think that we might be in a better place soon, hopefully. Mm. That kind of ties into my next question for you. And I think, you know, you touched upon this kind of concept of de-Westernization. You know, I think that's almost kind of like a given when it comes to talking about decolonizing the media, but what else does kind of decolonizing the media kind of involve for you? I think on a more general scale, this is easy to do, is to stop finding news that is newsworthy. Mm. Um, and by that, I mean that anytime, and I think a lot of freelancers, freelance journalists are gonna resonate with this, is that anytime you go to pitch an idea, you have to have an angle, but that angle isn't, I want to talk about this photographer who's doing work in an obscure place in the Maldives, because I think it's interesting. The angle has to be like, how can we sell this? How mm. can we, how can this entice our readers? Well, more often than not, when it means to entice the readers, it's like, what sort of already kind of, more often than not Eurocentric perspective can we put on this so that people will click, you know? Mm. Um, it's not enough to just have a story for a story's sake. That not, that's not to say that, you know, um, I can just write about, you know, any, I can talk about like filling up a glass of water today. No, I mean, there has to be interesting stories, but it doesn't have to be newsworthy as in something mm-hmm. that has to go on, you know, the six o'clock news or has some sort of Eurocentric perspective. I mean, I'll talk specifically about an experience I had where they kind of wanted to talk about, relate it back to the Arab Spring. And I thought, well, the Arab Spring has happened over a decade ago now. And we need to stop looking at the Middle East as just the Arab Spring. There's a lot more that's happening. In fact, the Arab Spring is quite, in some cases, very irrelevant. Um, and this is for a publication that prides itself on being you know, diverse and having diverse writers and topics. So I think you know, to answer your question again, it's just about taking a step back, not trying to push this agenda to sell. And I get it. Like, media is dying no one's buying newspapers anymore they need to obviously make money but I think when you start putting this pressure like make money make money you're missing out Mm -hmm. on all of these authentic voices and stories that can actually have very impactful change 
I definitely agree with you. And I think just having this kind of agenda to like sell, sell, sell when it comes to like your stories and kind of what you write, that in itself is like colonial. And I think that actually ties really well into our next topic of like media studies and journalism curricula. And I think, you know, you're obviously in a really good position to kind of give a well-informed insight, seeing as you study journalism at a more advanced and like focus level. So my first question is, are there any things you've noticed in your curriculum that have kind of colonial undertones or are even kind of explicitly colonial? Yes, so the curriculum itself on on paper is fine. You're, uh, you're never gonna look at our journalism course and, and see you know the module performa and be like, this is inherently colonial. The issue is the execution, that's the issue. Mm. And the execution cannot be monitored. It's basically students' words against the lecturers. And unfortunately, I think that this time around, and I don't know, I don't know if this is just because it's COVID, but also I don't want to have to keep using COVID as like a, a crutch to be like, oh, let's justify everything because of COVID. But yeah. I can only speak on this experience because I've, I was only in this course during COVID. But there was many instances where I had a lot of classmates that wanted to talk about stories that impacted them. And this goes back to what I just said about talking about a story for the sake of it being a story with no news angle. And particularly, I had students that wanted to talk about the protests in, in India, the farmer protests, and I had another classmate who wanted to talk about uh, the BLM movement, and also um, the movement in Nigeria um, against the military police there. And each time my, my classmates would pitch these ideas, my lecturers were like, well, no, like, what's the value in this? What's the value for a UK audience? for a London audience. And I thought to myself, London is a city of 10 million people. For every one white person, there's probably like four other ethnicities you can, you can throw out there. So when, you, when my lecturers are saying the London audience, are you specifically talking about the white audience, the Anglo-Saxon audience? That's, there we go. That is a big issue right there. Now, you don't yeah. see it in the performa. They're always talking about, oh, the audience, the audience. Well. On paper, the audience can be anybody, but when it's, you know, in reality, this audience apparently is this just like, I'm thinking this uppity person who lives in King's Cross that goes and has, you know, bottomless brunch. Also, it does a disservice to them because it assumes that these individuals also don't care about international politics or international yeah. news as well. So I think that was a big problem. I think I noticed, especially in this program, is that anytime we wanted to write a story, we were always told, well, who is, what value does this have for our audience? Like, mm. well there's 10 million people out there. There's, there's gonna be somebody who finds this interesting. Um, exactly. And I think that that was a big issue. Also, I think a lot of us probably, and I think this is just an issue, unfortunately, at the university, and maybe there isn't enough talent out there, uh, or by talent, I mean talent that's ready for the roles. Like, we didn't have a lot of representation in our lecturers. For example, most of our lecturers were white males. Mm. You know, we had two females, who came as guest lecturers and they were phenomenal, but why were they not here on like a full-time basis? Um, and I think that that was kind of, it would have been great to have women. It would have been great to have people of color because you do get a different perspective when, when they teach because they're bringing in their own experiences. So they mm. can really kind of provide that diversity. Um, Cause I think the, I think really healing and change comes from people talking about their experiences and sharing it. Because 
you and I are, are completely different ethnic backgrounds, but there's a million and one things we can relate to. You know, mm-hmm. there's a million and one things that we're like, you've had that same experience I have had. And that's obviously quite universal and we can change it. So I think for the, the media studies, especially when I talked about how journalism and news media is quite insidious, that's where a lot of these undercurrents and these tones of, of prejudice and ignorance come from and continue to be perpetuated mainstream. When you start teaching these, these students to be, you know, free thinkers and, all, and also kind of objective, you're also telling them at the same time, you can't really be a free thinker. You have to tailor your ideas to fit the, the agenda, to fit the news angle. And also you can't really be objective because your audience, who's your audience kind of thing. And that was, that definitely needs to be changed. So do you feel like it's possible to kind of effectively decolonize media and kind of journalism curricula when the media outside itself like isn't yet decolonized? Is that something that needs to happen first or are we capable of doing this work despite that? It's kind of like a chicken and the egg question, you know, it's like, <laughs> what do you do first? Both are obviously, they're, they're, it's kind of like this circular system. It's both feeding into each other. I feel like you just need to come and karate chop it right in the middle and just <laughs> cut it off and then, you know, fix it. I, I think that honestly, both, but I also think to myself, today's students are tomorrow's future mm-hmm. kind of thing. And so if gun to my head, if I had to choose, it would be start fixing their curriculum yeah. because we are, as students, we are literally these, this blank slate, but we're also full of optimism and energy and this desire to change. And we can affect change, you know, because we can go out there and collectively be like, actually, that's complete BS. I'm going to start my mm-hmm. own publication. And to be fair, there's a lot of freelancers out there that are starting their own publication. Unfortunately, it, you know, a lot of them solicit um, freelancers and they can't pay them because they don't get enough views or not getting sponsored, et cetera, et cetera. But mm-hmm. I think like there's probably eventually going to be this change. I think what's really awesome is that digital media, like that's also another thing. The fact that now there's a lot of self-publishing, you can yeah. easily create your own site now for a handful of dollars, put your, your work out there. That's great. I also think that it's kind of one of those things where it's now becoming a bit diluted. Everybody's doing their own thing. Mm-hmm. There's so much out there, but it's now become diluted because you don't know where to begin. Um, but yeah, I think we can start with the students. I think students, the young people, I'm saying young people as if I'm an old person. I'm not, <laughs> for the record. <laughs> You know, like we are the future of tomorrow. We can affect mm-hmm. change. We can change these institutions. I mean, think about what's happened in like the last 365 days. Who would mm-hmm. have in a million years have thought that there would have been people on the streets bringing down statues of white men who went across the world and caused a bunch of these problems? You know, I would have, I would have never imagined in a million years, but here we are. So I do believe that we can, we can create change. Thank you. I think that's really inspiring as well and a nice way to kind of draw the uh, episode to a close. But as a question I'd like to end on, what is something you'd like to see develop within higher education in the next 10 years? You know, this might come across as kind of like a very scandalous answer, (laughs) but I would like to stop perpetuating the idea that people need higher education Mm -hmm. Um, to be successful in life. I 
I do see, unfortunately, higher education is actually a barrier to entry for a lot of people as well. When I think about the fact that, and this is just regardless of background, ethnicity, whatever, I'm thinking how expensive it is nowadays, how unfortunately um, uh, undergrad is not enough to get you a job. Oftentimes you need a master's. Even then, you know, you're competing with a bunch of other talented individuals with a limited amount of jobs. And that puts you in a really precarious place because most often than not, most of us are taking out student loans and trying to pay for these things. So I think in the next 10 years, I'd either want the idea of you must have a university degree to be somebody of value to be changed. I want that narrative to be changed. I also want higher education to become affordable. I really mm -hmm. don't think that, you know, nine grand as an international student, 17 grand uh, is justifiable. Yeah. Um, and I think that it's quite problematic. And then the third thing I'd love to see for higher education is just, I would, I would honestly love to see just diversity in the teaching staff. I think there are a lot of um, courses and degree programs in universities here in the UK and also even back home in Canada that would benefit from having modules and courses that are not so Eurocentric and that are not taught primarily by um, research staff that come from um, a European or, or white background. I think it'd be great to have diversity in voices because you know what? The reason why I didn't get into academia to begin with was because A, the schooling was, was too much, you know, it was like 10 years of schooling. And then after that, the chance of me being hired from a university, even within Canada was slim to none because they kept taking research staff from, from, from the States and more often mm. than not, they were always European or white. And so I thought, well, a brown Muslim woman is definitely not gonna be getting a teaching job or tenor track professorship anytime soon. So yeah, I think those are the changes that I would like to see. Thank you so much for joining me on this episode of the podcast. You know, it's always a delight to see you and chat with you, but mm -hmm. I think to interview about something, you know, you really show a passion for is just like the icing on the cake. And, you know, you've made some really interesting points and suggestions and I look forward to hopefully having you again on, in the future. Yeah, and of um, course. Thank you so much. No, thank you. This was, a, this was honestly a very enjoyable conversation. I really loved all the questions that you asked and it's always a pleasure chatting with you as well. To find out more information, access our tools or get in touch, visit us at blog.westminster.ac.uk slash PSJ. Thank you.